last time we started with the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And as we talked about the cosmological argument, what are we arguing from? Arguing from... Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? No? <laughs> cosmological argument. The argument from looking at the universe and seeing that uh, there is an order, there is a, uh, a purpose to the universe, okay? Remember that there's really only three choices with regard to um, how we got here. One of them is, is that the universe has always been here. It's eternal. And we looked at that and said this violates the second law of thermodynamics, that is, that entropy, things are getting less and less ordered as you get older. Okay, things uh, as things age, as time increases, so also entropy increases. That is um, the the failing of systems that were formerly working well. Okay, and so if things are going in this direction, at some time we understand that everything was wound up. That is, if you've got a clock and you have uh, wound it all the way up, and you realize that suddenly that clock is beginning, the pendulum is beginning to swing slower. Then what's going to happen? You're going to look at it and say, okay, there was a time when this clock was completely wound up, whenever it was completely functioning the way it ought to. So we know, number one, the universe is not eternal. The second option for us being here is that the universe had some beginning that was outside of an intelligent design or intelligent creator. That is, at some point in the past, we know the universe had a beginning, but how did it begin? How did it begin? Scientists want to tell us that at one time there was nothing, and then all of a sudden, boom, there was something. And that nothing began as a very, 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 add that about 2,000 more times, small speck of particle or matter or dust. And the inflation theory says that that very, 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 very small piece of dust expanded into everything that you see and everything that we are today. They call it what? The Big Bang, the Big Bang Theory. Here's the thing. The fundamental problem with the Big Bang Theory is it still hasn't explained where that very, 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 very small piece of matter came from that they say everything that we see is derived from. They say it's literally nothing because it's so small that if you open up your hand, you wouldn't see anything. It's so small that it's basically nothing. But basically nothing is not nothing. And this very, 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 very small particle is still something. And they still haven't explained how that very, 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 very small something came into place. We know the universe is not eternal. The Big Bang Theory is an option. It's not a good option, but it's the only option that those who deny God are left with. And the only other option that we have is the third one, and that is that the universe was created by an intelligent creator. Exactly what it is that the Bible tells us it is and exactly what it is and exactly the way Honestly that the Bible describes things are now You know you go back and you look at some of the theories and the origins of the universe and um, somebody uh, Again, I have to go back into my books, but somebody said, okay um, You know, what is the earth and where is it? And they said well, it's riding on the back of a giant turtle Okay, well, what's what's a turtle standing on? Well, it's another turtle. What's that turtle standing on? It's another turtle. And you've, you see some crazy kind of specific um, goofy type of uh, origin stories to the universe about the way that it happened. 
And yet at the same time, when we look around and we say, what's reality? What can I go out? What can I observe in the, uh, in the known universe? What can I see through a telescope? What can I see in the parking lot or in the trees or in the flowers, in the grass? Is it anything like, and we would expect, is it anything like what this book describes? The answer is yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Cosmological argument of the existence of the universe. The second one we want to talk about this evening is the teleological argument. Teleological argument. This is an argument from design. Argument from design. There is tremendous order and complexity in the universe. Order and complexity. If we wanted to start with the human body, here's the question. When I get sick, how is it that I'm healed? All right, it's part of the body, okay? When you look at the, the way that the body gets sick, but also how the body is able to heal itself. Um, I was running a couple weeks ago, and I was out there with the dog, and uh, I was, uh, it was in the morning, early, early morning, and part of the sidewalk was uneven. As I was running, I caught the tip of my foot on that thing. I thought, oh, no, I'm going down. Sure enough, I went down. Luckily, I landed such that you know I didn't hurt my hands or anything like that. just took the skin off of them, but my knee was skinned up pretty bad. You know what's happened with my knee? It's not still bleeding, thankfully. It's not still skinned up, thankfully. But what's happened is, is that the system that's in place, that is the blood system, was able to have those platelets to form and to harden and to form into a scab, while underneath that scab, you find the body repairing itself. How does it do that? How does evolution, a mindless, thinkingless, a brainless type of system put into our system, bodies, this ability for the body to heal itself. Um, human hand, the human hand, your hand, is strong. It's got strength to it. But at the same time, your hand has got such dexterity that you can... Well, you can pick little Legos off, uh, like I've been doing it all afternoon with my kids, you know. You can pick little Legos off of one big piece or a Lego, and you can place them right where it is that they go. And my daughter uh, likes to, to do some cross-stitching, and she's able to just use her, her finger and her thumb and just uh, to, to be able to make these beautiful patterns because of the dexterity of that. Now, here's the thing. What happens for somebody whenever it is that their arm gets injured beyond repair? Well, we can go down to the doctor with our modern medical care and we can say, okay, the arm needs to be taken off and they can do that. Thank God for wonderful medical care. And then with our medical care and with our science, we can take and replace that arm. And we can give that child a, or a person a, a new arm to where it is that, believe it or not, they can begin to, to connect it to the synapses to where they can have some measure of brain control over the way that that arm works. It's amazing, amazing ability. Here's the question. How many of us would trade this arm that happens, again, according to some, by accident, for one that was clearly designed by man in a lab somewhere or in a testing ground? Who's ready to do that? Why not? Why not? The teleological argument talks about argument from design and how it is that Everything that we have 
and everything that we see as far as being able to replicate a human hand and say, I can get some of the movements and some of the dexterity between the thumb, the opposable thumb and the four fingers, and trying to get things to where they move like that. And that clearly had a design, that mechanical arm. But who designed your arm? And they would say, well, nobody designed it. It just happened by accident. It just happened by chance. This arm over here, fake arm, the prosthetic arm, is designed, but this is not designed. Um, you know, science becomes its own law in a lot of cases. If we have design, surely we have to admit that there is a designer. And if there is a designer, surely he has a design for all of us. Questions or comments about that? What you laughing at, Ken? <laughs> oh, no, I was talking to this Ken, but that, that Ken was laughing too. I caught them both at one time. <laughs> it's a definition of two birds with one stone. Ken, tell me what your thought was, Ken. If something was designed, it has to have a designer. If something has a system or a process, can we assume that that system or process didn't get in place by itself? Oh, um, I don't know if you've ever seen any of those videos that float around YouTube from time to time where you know this guy goes out and he interviews atheists. And he talks to them about, okay, you're an atheist. Yes, I am. Why? Because there's no evidence for a God. Okay. And one of the evidences that he'll use is he says, what is your DNA? And they say, well, it's the thing that makes me me. Okay. And what is it comprised of? Well, it's comprised of, you know, this, this protein, this protein, or whatever it is that it's comprised of. And he says, what do we call DNA so often? He says, DNA is a code. It's a basic building block. It's a code, and it's something that... Uh, is in order and that uh, is ordered. Well, wait a minute. You're telling me that this code, if I went and I sat down on my computer and I looked at that computer and said, okay, there's obviously a system or process to Windows 10. I haven't been able to find it just yet, okay? I'm, I'm not really terribly impressed with Windows 10 since I've upgraded to it. But I understand that somebody was behind that and putting that code into place but then somebody comes along and says, there's a code within each one of you, but that code just happened by accident. All of these different pieces now coming together and making me, me, and making me individual from you, and making you different from every other person on the face of the earth. That people can identify you by your DNA and by the evidence of your individuality and that code that's, that's right there in each one of us. But if there's a code... There's got to be a code maker or a programmer or a designer or at least something like that. And so it is, again, if there is a designer, surely he has a design for us. Good thought. Others? And you know what's amazing, uh, uh, Clay brings up an interesting point, is uh, we're not all the same. This code is different for you and for me, but here's the wonderful thing. When you have a husband that loves his wife very much and a wife that loves her husband very much, the design plan is, is that when those two come together in the sexual union, 
you have the 23 chromosomes that come from the husband, 23 chromosomes that come from the wife, and they put together to form the 46 that becomes a brand new person. I took my son to breakfast this morning with the Romeos at uh, the Whataburger, and they, Ken just remarked a little while ago, it's like a me and a mini-me with me and him sitting there. And you have the ability to have that life that perpetuates, that, uh, that, that continues life, but you also have the ability to take the 23 chromosomes from here, the 23 chromosomes from here, and have a new life that, well, in the words of the Bible, is created in your image. You know, uh, you have those children that just say, oh, you just favor your mother. Or, oh, you look just like your father. And as you get older, you see those things that mom lo starts to look like or the child starts to look like mom in their later years. They'll start to look like dad. And it's especially scary when you begin to hear the things your mom used to say coming out of your own mouth and, and <laughs> those type of things. But you understand that there's the individuality of that person. But it is because of the relationship that God had planned in the husband and wife that this new person can be well, created, uh, formed, um, can come into, uh, come into this world. Uh, you know, there's human beings and facts that demand reason. For example, here's just a couple of statistics. If you're an average adult living over a period of 24 hours, your heart is going to be 103,689 times. Over 24 hours, your blood is going to travel 168 million miles. I can't imagine that. You're going to breathe 23,000 times. You're going to eat 3.4 pounds of food, unless you go to Golden Crown, that's usually like 6.8. Um, you're going to go to drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You're, you're going to speak 4,800 words, unless you're a preacher, and that's going to be like 10,000. Uh, your hair is going to grow um, 0.01714 inches. Your fingernails are going to grow 0.000046 inches. You're going to exercise 7 million brain cells over the period of 24 hours. And it is that when you talk about the parts of the body, you know, a piano has 88 keys. Your ear has the equivalent of 1,500 keys. Each foot has 26 bones in them, no bigger than your thumb. And it is that the foot is so designed that a 300-pound man can put his full weight on it and have it support that weight. Your eyes are both microscopes and telescopes, especially as you get older and start going. I turned 40 and I started doing that. I couldn't believe it. You know, it's amazing. But <laughs> your heart starts beating before birth and it's going to beat 4,320 uh, 4, times per hour. And you're going to have 40 million beats a year on your heart. And somebody wants to come along and say, you're just a product of chance. You're just a product of random molecules that got together in the right order, in the right circumstance, in the right heat, in the right primordial soup one time, and over the course of billions and billions of years, you evolved into you. We finished up last week in talking about um, the evolutionary process. Here's the question. What happens if it is in the evolutionary process that the, um, the mouth and the throat evolved faster than the stomach did. What's going to happen? You're not going to have any way to process food. You're not going to have any way for the nourishment of that food to get into the body in a meaningful way. Well, what happens if the mouth and the throat and then the stomach all evolve faster than the digestive system? 
you're not going to have any way to get the excess or the waste out of your system. And so it is, you're looking at this solution, that if this doesn't evolve at the exact same rate as this, and this doesn't evolve at the exact same rate as this, all the processes working together, you're talking about death in every situation. There's not a single outcome where it is that death is not going to occur. But what's even more than that is that say that this person, this being, evolved all at the same time. All these processes evolved all at once. In a random happenstance, one in ten bazillion that this happened. Here's the question. What happened if another didn't evolve at the exact same time at the exact same rate and end up in the exact same place for those two to get together and have a reproductive system that was evolved also to where hers was exactly right as his and they could continue that life at that given time. Again, you're talking about the inability to produce offspring and the, the inability to uh, continue that life cycle. Again, and people want to say that we're just a product of random chance, that it was just a miracle, but we don't believe in miracles. We don't believe that it happened that way, right? A lucky break. Questions or comments about that? That's the human body. About the animal world. The animal world. It's the same thing. That's exactly right, Ken. We're going to close it up early tonight. No, um, the animal world. Giraffe. Giraffes are amazing creatures. My wife's favorite animal. And can you, if you can imagine that the newborn baby giraffe is as tall as I am, six feet tall. But then you've got the ones that grow up to 25, 30 feet tall. Here's the question. How does that giraffe heart beat blood to where it goes with such force that it gets all the way up that long neck to that brain? Can you imagine the force that it must take for that giraffe's heart to be, uh, it's massive, to beat the blood that was going to get that, uh, that um, to get the blood all the way up to the brain so that the giraffe can continue to live? Here's the question. What about the tallness of it and the weight of that blood bearing down on that giraffe? You would expect that there would be pooling of the blood in the legs. How does it keep it from doing that? It keeps pumping, but <laughs> how does it keep uh, the legs from beginning to pull the blood? Because you're talking about a tremendous weight with the blood that's circulating and, and certainly the height that it has. There's tremendous pressure on the legs. How do you keep from the giraffe having uh, those big elephant feet? Once again. It would store it in different places. Not the answer I'm looking for. It's actually something very practical. Has anybody ever worn compression socks? You like compression socks? <laughs> some say yes, some say no. What's the purpose of compression socks? To compress and to keep that circulation moving, right? To keep the blood from keeping and weighing you down and, and causing your feet to swell and such. Those compression socks keep the blood and keep the blood vessels very, very constricted. You know how the, keep, the blood stays from pooling down at the bottom of the giraffe feet? They have very, very tight skin. And in fact, you could say the giraffe are wearing compression socks. Here's something else. Suppose that giraffe goes and it wants to get some water. 
and it's going to take that very, very long neck, and it's going to bend it all the way down into the water. What's going to happen as far as the uh, pressure go does? Do what? It's going to go up massively, especially when you've got that huge heart that's pumping uh, all of that blood down to the head. You would expect that the first time it went down for water that the giraffe's head would just shoot right off, right? It doesn't do that. Why not? Because there's uh, apparatus all the way down the neck that as that giraffe leans its head down, the apparatus closes and it slows down the pressure of that, of that blood pumping against, uh, pumping down to the head. It's an amazing process, and it's amazing, can we call it design, in this animal that giraffes are able even to exist to begin with. What about birds? Anybody ever wear anything Velcro? You know wherever they got the idea for Velcro? They got it from birds. How did they get that? When you look under a microscope at the feathers of birds, you know what they do is they've got these little hooks that interlock not only between the feathers on an individual blades on the individual feather, but also so that the feathers can interlock with each other and create this structure for this bird, for this animal. And whenever you go in and you look also at the design of the skeletal system, you find that the birds are designed with hollow bones. Their skeletons are very, very, very light to the point where it is that they can achieve lift just by you know, flapping just a couple of times and having uh, those, those, those wings to be able to, to give them lift. It's an amazing thing. You know, bees. Bees have remarkable communication between uh, scout bees and worker bees. They go in this, this, this intricate dance, and they have an orientation to the sun and how they build their nest to the food source. And it is that uh, whenever they're dancing, they're giving based upon the waggle, wiggle, waggle. Uh, the waggle indicates how far it is that they are from their food source so that they can do this dance and say, hey, Jim, it's, it's 50 meters down the way, you know, or 50, uh, 50 feet down the way. You know, assuming evolutionary theory, how did the first ancestral bees communicate to one another what each part of the dance meant if they didn't have any other form of communication? How did that happen, uh, assuming ancestral evolutionary theory. It just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. There is tremendous design, and I don't care where it is that you go. You can go to uh, the, the, the plant kingdom and begin to just look at the system that's in trees, that's built into trees or built into flowers or certain kind of flowers that produce uh, the pollen. So it is that the bees can go and they can uh, spread that and, and they're self-propagating uh, flowers and all those different things. And you look at it and you say, if there's design... Why can't there be, or why shouldn't there be, a designer? That's the teleological argument. You can just say argument from design if it is that you forget what that is. Just go and look at the human hand. Look at the design. And everything that we've modeled our technology after, for example, the camera. What's the camera based on? It's based on your eye. When you talk about aperture, how much light that gets left into the camera or let into the camera, when you talk about macro versus micro, when you talk about uh, changing the lenses, all of those things came about from somebody looking at this thing that you've got in your head that you take for granted every single day and saying, you know what, I'll bet I could build one of those that could store images and keep images in a system that, well, we can, uh, we can make an imprint of it. 
That camera was designed. Why not your eye? Why not your eye? Which is far more impressive than any camera could ever be. Before we leave uh, the teleological argument, is there anybody else that has a uh, thought or a thought? I couldn't come up with a better word. All right. Let's talk about number three, the anthropic principle. I'll spell it for you for those of you that are taking notes. The anthropic, A-N-T-H-R-O-P-I-C. The anthropic argument or anthropic principle. This is the argument from the right conditions for life. I don't know how many sci-fi fans we have here, right? Um, I like sci-fi. I like uh, the old episodes of Star Trek or, um, you know, like the next generation better, honestly. But, you know, um, things like Star Wars and those things. But you go and Captain Kirk is sending down a landing party and they say, Captain, this, this planet is uninhabitable. The climate is too cold or too hot. Or, uh, sir, there's, there's poison in the atmosphere or things like that. And they're giving reports because that was their mission to boldly go where no man has gone before. Right? I'll save you the theremon. But you understand that there's, uh, there's a purpose for them going and looking. Did you ever wonder how it is that in this place where these people and where, where it is that we live, this home that we call Earth, how it is that this has the exact right conditions where it is that you and I can live in relative ease and, um, and be adaptable to the climate? to where it is that it doesn't just kill us from one minute to the next. That's the argument of the anthropic principle. The anthropos is the Greek word for man. So how is it that our universe, and especially our solar system and our planet, is tailor-made for you and me? Tailor-made. It's fitted just right for us. Dr. Robert Jastrow, who was an agnostic, he means he doesn't know if there's, or he says you can't believe that there's a God or can't know, don't have enough evidence, agnostic evolutionist. Uh, Dr. Robert Jastrow says the universe was constructed within very narrow limits in such a way that man could dwell in it. This result is called the anthropic principle. He said it's the most theistic result to ever come out of science in my view. The fact that scientists can look at the anthropic principle that our world was tailor-made for us and say this is the most theistic thing that we could ever say has led scientists to say this. We know that this universe happened by accident. We know that there's no divine creator, and that means that we just got extremely, extremely lucky with regard to where it is that we were placed in this universe. Here's the really weird thing. When you look at things like quantum mechanics, and please don't glaze over. I'm not going to go deeply into it because I don't go deeply into things that I understand, don't understand. But when you look at things like quantum mechanics, you know what they're trying to prove is something related to this tailor-made theory, this tailor-made observation. A man by the name of Brandon Carter back in 1973, it was Copernicus's 500th birthday. Brandon Carter articulated an anthropic principle in reaction to what Copernicus had said 500 years ago. Copernicus had said, uh, Copernicus said, humans don't occupy a privileged position in the universe. What Brandon Carter said is, although our situation is not necessarily central, he said it is inevitably privileged to some extent. 
And this was back in the 50s and 60s when they still thought that the universe was eternal, that there was still a steady state theory, okay? And as they've studied and as they've realized, okay, life is not possible. If you're going to start with the Big Bang, start with the Big Bang and say everything exploded. How often do you get order out of an explosion? George. George has done it. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Okay, go. Have I ever th seen anything come out round out of an explosion? Can't say that I have. I won't. <laughs> George blows up a lot of things. <laughs> I feel like we have authority figures here. Yes, go ahead. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. George is saying, and I'll see if I can rearticulate it. He says, you're never going to find anything round that occurs out of an explosion. Now, here's the thing. If I've got a world here that's, for practical purposes, round, it's a little bit uh, squishy round, um, but you understand for all practical purposes, you're not going to have anything orbit around something that's shaped like a football. You know why? Because there's a point at which the gravity is going to be less on this end than it is on that end. It's just going to go hurling out into outer space. That's a, that's, a, that's a great point to be made. All right, so we're starting with the Big Bang, and we're saying explosion. How is it we have life here in this anthropic principle? The scientists that have looked at this and said, for all intents and purposes, we shouldn't be here. And you know what they've done is they've taken things like quantum mechanics, and you know really what they're trying to prove? They're trying to prove the existence of another dimension. They're trying to prove that there is a, another universe, a parallel universe. Now we're into like Marvel type of stuff and, and sci-fi completely. But they're trying to prove that there's another universe that's right next to us, and then another one next to that, and another one next to that, and an infinite number of universes that are all lined up along the same timeline, and as these universes are here, what's happening is they're trying to prove and say, well, you see, it's so good for us, but it's not so good for this universe next door. Everything that you read as far as, uh, and again, I don't understand these things, but string theory, you hear things like that, string theory and, uh, and, and these, these quantum mechanics types of terms and studies, you know what they're trying to do? Is they're trying to take and prove scientifically that the only reason why we're here is just a cosmic accident and that somewhere in another dimension in a parallel universe they didn't have it so lucky but we're just part of a very very lucky universe that has this tailor-made universe that's just for us isn't that kooky it's a little nuts i mean just when you really think about it because you know all of this is trying to prove the design and perfect conditions of the universe without the existence of a divine creator that's it I can't accept that there's a God, so I'm going to accept that there's an alternative reality, another universe, or a multiverse that's right next door to me, because I know and I reject the idea of a sovereign creator. That's what you're left with. That's what you're left with. All right, we're going to move away from that. Moral argument. The moral argument. The last one we'll cover this evening. Your eyes are starting to glaze over, so stay with me just for a long. Moral argument. What is morality?
Not a trick question. What is morality? It's right and wrong. Exactly right. If you want a uh, textbook definition, morality is the character of being in accord with the principles or standards of right conduct. When we talk about is something ethical, we're talking about in terms of right or wrong, okay? Here's a system, here's a code by which attitudes and actions are determined to be either right or wrong. So here we are this evening talking about right and wrong. Why can I talk about right and wrong? Why even have a discussion about right and wrong? If we're just animals and we're a part of the animal world, why in the world would I ever want to try and talk about that in terms in those terms? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Survival of the fittest. Um, all of those evolutionary principles ought to still apply, and that is that you know the fastest one is the one that's going to be, well, king at least for a little while until somebody rises up and kills him and takes his place because that's what animals do. That's the way animals behave. The weak, the slow, the, the lazy, the infirm, all of those ones ought to be well, dead and gone, and it's only going to be a matter of time before they are, if that's all we are. But we can't talk in terms of like that because there's something inside me and there's something inside you that has a moral oughtness. What ought I to do whenever I see that person who uh, went up from Jerusalem to Jericho and was beaten and taken among thieves and they left him half dead on the side of the road? What ought I to do? Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 10 to say, look at that guy. Here comes a priest, and he passes by on the other side. Look at that guy. He's half dead, lying in a ditch, and this Levite goes by on the other side. What ought somebody to do? And who does Jesus use as the hero in the story? Oh, those dirty dogs, those Samaritans. That Samaritan, man, he comes and he looks at him. He takes care of him. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil on his wounds, and he puts him on his own donkey, takes him down the road to the, to the inn, uh, gives the innkeeper money, and then takes the, a couple extra days worth of money and says, if there's anything else that he charges, on my, put it on my account. And Jesus comes back to this man and says, now who was the one who was the neighbor? Make a choice about this lawyer. I want you to choose and say, who was the one who was a neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? You kind of hear the guy swallow in his throat because he almost can't bring himself to say it. He said, one who showed mercy to him. He didn't want to say the Samaritan. He said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus says, you go and you do likewise. You go and you be compassionate like that. Why even have and talk about compassion towards a fellow man if all we are is just an accident, if all we are is just dust, if all we are is just animals? Where does the moral ought that's in you come from? You know, this is something that only human beings do. Morality is universally and uniquely a human trait. You're not going to find in the ape world, considering whether it is that they ought to do this or they ought to do that, you know, a, a gorilla that goes and takes a banana, you're not going to find him going through this reasoning process going, you know, I really... Think that it was not fair for me to take that banana. You know, when a dog takes a bone from another dog, my dog does this to my brother's dog, and and he's not going to have any moral compunction. I guarantee you about uh, taking this dog's bone. You know, cat sh uh, shreds the side of your important Italian couch. He doesn't need therapy to deal with the feelings of guilt that he has. It's just it, that's man stands alone among living creatures because of something that's within you. What do we call that? Jiminy, Jiminy Cricket years ago sang, and always let your 
conscience be your guide. You have something that's in you that is a moral compass, a conscience, something that tells you the difference between right and wrong. And even though that moral sense can become dulled or hardened or uh, ignored or persistently violated, what it's going, or maybe just distorted for whatever reason, you still have it. You still have it. The need for a moral standard is recognized. No sane person argues that absolutely anything goes in our life. There's nobody that argues for that. You know, um, those people who would like to contend that there's no such thing as right and wrong and moral responsibility to justify will quickly recognize right and wrong when it comes to how it is that they want to be treated by others. You're not going to have somebody that, that argues and says, no, 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 we, uh, we can do whatever you want to do, and then I can punch him in the nose, and he says, well, wait, you can't do that. Well, who says I can't? If there's no God, if there's no moral objectivity, well, then anything goes, and that's just the way things are. This is really talking about who makes the rules. Who's going to be the one that's going to be God? And brothers and sisters, that's the big question of our day, and that's the exact world that we're living in. It's people who are looking around in a culture of chaos and moral confusion, a generation that no longer believes in anything. Well, they don't believe in moral absolutes. There's no such thing as an objective right and an objective wrong. And these are the people that you deal with every single day. Instead, you say, whatever's right for you is right for you. Whatever's wrong for me is wrong for me. Well, that's okay until it is that somebody takes out a gun and shoots somebody, and they say, that's wrong. Well, how do you know that's wrong? It, it might have been right for that person that pulled out the gun and shot. We have an objective standard to say things like, well, what we talked about on Sunday night, that murder is wrong, objectively, morally evil. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from evolution. It comes from a God who created us in his image, and we have a responsibility to answer to him. Thank you for your attention this evening, and I uh, hope this has been helpful for you, if nothing else than interesting, but hopefully faith-building. Thank you.